Africa, rise and shine. Africa, sosa. Africa, amuka na unai. And a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabisoluhugo, and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Lesotho political party sign electoral pledge. UN denies reports that it's planning to create a protectorate in South Sudan and health experts meet in Geneva to discuss the Ebola crisis. In economics, Co-op Bank of Kenya to cut 160 jobs and in sports news, Equatorial Guinea ready to host the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. A twin bomb attack has killed at least 30 people in a busy area of the Nigerian city of Jos. The two bombs exploded in a marketplace near the scene of a major bombing in May. Jos has a mixed population of Muslims and Christians, and in recent years, Boko Haram militants have attacked churches and mosques there. The group has killed more than 2,000 people this year. No one has claimed responsibility for the latest bombings. The United Nations mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, has denied any plan to place the country under international protection. Media reports has, had suggested that the move was imminent due to a breakdown in peace talks. South Sudan continues to suffer instability as a result of fighting between the government and rebels. Around 2 million people have fled their homes. UNMIS spokesperson Joe Contreras. The mission has taken note of media reports in the last week or so claiming that there is a secret plan by the international community to place South Sudan under a United Nations protectorate. It's not the first time that these rumors have surfaced, but UNMIS wanted to set the record straight once and for all that there is no basis to such claims. Authorities in Sudan are stepping up efforts to force the UN-African Union mission in Darfur to leave, threatening the supply of vital humanitarian aid deliveries. UNAMID deployed to Darfur in 2007 its nearly 16,000 peacekeepers mandated to protect civilians and secure humanitarian assistance. The arid western region of Sudan where UNAMID is deployed has been wrecked by violence since the start of a rebel uprising in 2003, with more than 300,000 dead and the government accused of war crimes and its fight against the insurgents. International crisis group analyst Jerome Tubien says Sudan's government has never tried to hide its hostility to the presence of foreign troops on its territory. But UNAMI's attempts to investigate a report that Sudanese troops raped 200 women and girls in the village after beat seem to have pushed authorities over the edge. 
A Zimbabwe opposition party has filed papers in the Constitutional Court in Harare opposing the swearing-in ceremony of President Robert Mugabe's two new vice presidents. The National Constitutional Assembly Party argues that it is unconstitutional to appoint two vice presidents to replace one after Joyce Mujuru was sacked. The second vice president's post has been vacant since the 2013 death of John Gomo. The swearing-in ceremony is due today. Security strongman Emerson Mnangagwa has been appointed as Mugabe's first deputy. And finally, Sadiq facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa has brokered an electoral pledge with political parties in Lesotho to respect the independence of the Electoral Commission. According to the pledge, equal resources and access to state media will be provided. The outcome of the February 2015 elections will also be accepted. Political leaders signed the pledge to refrain from inciting violence during the election period. Ramaphosa has commended the acting heads of the police and the army for voluntarily agreeing to a memorandum of understanding. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. SADC facilitator Cyril Ramaphosa has brokered an electoral pledge with political parties in Lesotho to respect the independence of the Independent Electoral Commission. According to the pledge, equal resources and access to state media will be provided. The outcome of the February 2015 elections will also be accepted. Political leaders signed the pledge to refrain from inciting violence during the election period. Ramaphosa has commended the acting heads of the police and the army for voluntarily agreeing to a memorandum of understanding. Ntakwanangatane reports. The day started with a remembrance service. A SADC facilitator, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, was in Lesotho on his 10th visit to return the country to democratic normality. Ramaphosa and National Assembly Speaker Baleka Mbete attended the event to honor 42 people killed when apartheid forces raided Maseru on the 9th of December 1982. The ceremony was also attended by Lesotho Prime Minister Tom Tabani, Deputy Prime Minister Mutejwa Metzing and Government Ministers. Better says the day is an opportunity to say thank you. Our being here today, indeed, we might shed some tears, but today is about celebrating their bravery, celebrating their love of country. It would not have happened had it not been for the love and commitment of Lesotho and other countries within Southern Africa. At midday, Ramaphosa led another ceremony of a more significant nature for present-day Lesotho. In his statement, he outlined the agreement that the political parties in Lesotho had reached to create a conducive environment for the upcoming elections. A small party, the Basotho African National Congress, attempted to derail the process, but it was told the consultative process was wide to ensure that all parties' views were included in the pledge. 
Ramaphosa also stressed the need for parties to refrain from behavior that may incite violence. Political parties also in this pledge undertake that they will accept the results of the elections when they are certified as being free and fair and credible by observers and that those who have any form of grievances will commit to handling all those grievances through the electoral process and the electoral procedures that have been set in place. And parties in signing this pledge are also saying they shall shun violence, they will refrain from language that will be inciting any form of violence or any form of intimidation and that in the end they will uh, conduct an election that is free and fair and an election that will also be ruled as being credible. Ramaphosa commended the acting heads of the police and the army for voluntarily penning a memorandum of understanding to work together for the benefit of the people of Lesotho. In a hard-hitting message, Ramaphosa said the two agencies have become highly politicized and this must change. If we remember that there was a time when there was great tension between the Lesotho-minded police service as well as the Lesotho Defence Force. And that tension has all but disappeared. All 20 registered political parties have signed the electoral pledge and the acting heads of the police and the army have signed the memorandum of understanding. I'm Takwanangatani in Maseru, Lesotho. The United Nations mission in South Sudan, UNMIS, has categorically denied any plan to place the country under international protection. Media reports had suggested that the move was imminent due to a breakdown in peace talks. South Sudan continues to suffer instability as a result of fighting between government and rebels. Around 2 million people have fled their homes. Gabriel Shada has been speaking to UNMIS spokesperson Joe Contreras. The mission has taken note of media reports in the last week or so claiming that there is a secret plan by the international community to place South Sudan under a United Nations protectorate. It's not the first time that these rumors have surfaced, but UNMIS wanted to set the record straight once and for all that there is no basis two such claims that South Sudan is a member state of the United Nations in good standing and that neither the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon nor UNMIS is aware of any plan or discussion of a plan to take such a step. Uh, the United Nations was instrumental in helping South Sudan gain its independence under the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, and all claims of a UN protectorate plan is, are completely baseless. We did hear that uh, some people uh, were advocating for putting the country under uh, a UN protection as uh, to become a UN protectorate, uh, but there is no precedence in the history of the United Nations uh, doing such a thing. Back in January, a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Africa published an opinion column calling on South Sudan to be placed under a U.N. trusteeship. 
that former U.S. State Department official acted entirely on his own behest, uh, and he never consulted the U.N., and his positions were strictly uh, his own. In the past, the United Nations has partially aided with the administration of a territory that was in the process of becoming independent, such as the cases of East Timor and Kosovo. But there has never been a case where the UN placed a fully independent and sovereign nation state under trustee or protectorate status, as is the case with South Sudan. That has never happened before, and it's not going to happen now. The officials of South Sudan seem to be apprehensive of such rumors, and to the extent that the statement is say, saying they have uh, voiced this concern to the mission. Well, I think there are concerns that senior officials of the South Sudanese government have voiced in recent days, and I think that largely is a response to a couple of statements that appeared in the communique issued by the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, which is mediating the peace talks between the warring parties in South Sudan. In that communique, the regional bloc, uh, known as EGAD, raised the prospect of regional intervention in South Sudan if the main parties to the crisis didn't reach a comprehensive peace agreement quickly. And there's also some talk in the EGAD document about imposing targeted sanctions. But those were statements made by EGAD. The United Nations had nothing to do with that communique, nor did the peacekeeping mission. Hence the felt need on the part of UNMIS to put out a statement that clearly and categorically dispelled and rejected such rumors from wherever quarter they come. Finally, what is the statement of the mission about the delayed peace process? The mission, uh, and in particular the special representative of the UN Secretary General for South Sudan, Ellen Loy, uh, remained deeply concerned about the conflict in South Sudan, uh, which has been going on now for almost a year, uh, causing untold suffering to the civilian population. Uh, and the special representative and the mission call on the leadership of both the government and the armed opposition to honor and fully implement the cessation of hostilities agreement they signed last January and to reach a definitive and comprehensive peace agreement without any further delays. That was UNMA spokesperson Joe Contreras speaking there to UN Radio's Gabriel Shadda. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Zimbabwe's Vice President-designate Emerson Mnangagwa was, has pledged to uphold the ideals of the country's struggle. Mnangagwa is expected to be sworn in on Friday as the country continues to wait for President Robert Mugabe to make new appointments to the cabinet following this week's sacking of seven ministers. Shingai Nyoka reports. A strong security orientation in the appointments of Zimbabwe's two new deputies. First Vice President, 68-year-old Emerson Mnangagwa, is nicknamed the Crocodile, strong, silent and feared. A reputation as a hardliner, he was State Security Minister when ZANU launched a counter-insurgency operation that terrorized and killed over 5,000, mainly Ndebele civilians. Analyst Pedro Sairohanya has been observing the developments. We could be moving in a, in a real political transition. 
especially the appointment of uh, Munangagwa as the first vice president of ZANU-PF. He is a long-standing ally of Mugabe, who has been with Mugabe since the time of the liberation struggle as a key uh, security uh, aid of Mugabe during the liberation war. And uh, post-independent, he has been minister of uh, uh, state uh, security, minister of defense, Diplomat Pelekeze Lampoko is a close ally of South Africa's ANC. He also has a military background. He received his training under the Joshua Nkomoled Zapu Party during the Liberation War, rising through the ranks to become a commander. Both men have welcomed the new honor. Emerson Mnangagwa. I am assured uh, the president that I want to assure the party and its leadership that I remain loyal, committed and uphold the correct line of the revolution which we have been in for the last 52 years. This is not a sleep on the job work. This is not a honeymoon. This is an after effect, a challenge to me. Zimbabweans say that while Mpoko is a dark horse, they hope the appointments will end the bitter wrangling that have overshadowed the country's real problems. I myself, I think that they have to settle settle things down first then put some politics aside then focus on rebuilding our country i know on the other side the vice president majuro i feel i feel i feel like it's it's, it's very sorry to him then i i, I we, we we just read about Mnangagwa and we've been hearing that uh, he has been working hard under scenes like coming up with different kind of strategies i think our nation is going is moving in the right direction you didn't take advantage of the land distribution he went and bought all his farms, trades and gold, using his own money. So I think we need someone like that who is principled. The vice presidents could be sworn in as early as Friday. As Zimbabwe acquaints itself with the leadership style of Menangagwa, a man who could one day be president. I'm Shinga Nyoka in Harare. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on this Friday, December the 12th, the 346th day of 2014 with 19 days left in the year. Going back in time to today, in 2006, Ethiopian dictator Mengistu Haile Mariam, known as the Butcher of Addis Ababa, is convicted of genocide in a rare case of an African... Str- strongman being held to account by his own country. And that was Today in History in 2006. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The need for sustaining Security Council attention on the Sahel is greater than ever, according to the Secretary-General Special Envoy for the region. High Route Gabriel Selassie gave an update to the 15-nation body on Thursday, highlighting peace and security issues in West Africa's vast area bordering the Sahara Desert. The Sahel region is facing multiple and complex challenges related to governance, development and human rights. Stephanie Kutrix reports. 
The UN's efforts in the Sahel will not be productive unless the countries of the region commit to some standards of governance. That was one of the first key messages to the Security Council by Hirut Gebre Selassie, who's been leading the UN's efforts since May to restore stability to the region. The focus has been on five countries, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. Ms. Selassie said she has been engaging with key stakeholders in these countries to gain an understanding of their perspectives and identify the challenges. I have been engaging with major partners working on the Sahel to emphasize the importance of coordination and coherence. Building on these consultations and following up on the visit of the Secretary General to the Sahel last year, I convened a meeting of major partners in November which resulted in the establishment of an international contact group on the Sahel. The special envoy also pointed out that the connections between terrorist and criminal networks in Libya, Mali and northern Nigeria are becoming clearer. She said these networks provide the markets for the exchange of weapons, fighters and other forms of illicit trade, including drug trafficking. It is estimated that close to 20,000 firearms from Libya have crossed into the Sahel and the greater part of the 18 ton of cocaine worth 1.25 billion US dollars dumped in West Africa transit through the Sahel region. It is worth noting that the profits from this illicit trafficking by far exceed the security budgets of most countries in the region. Ms. Selassie said the situation in Libya, where terrorists of the self-described Islamic State have allegedly set up training camps, is particularly worrisome. If not quickly brought under control, many states in the region could be destabilized in the near future, she warned. The representative of the United States mission to the UN, David Pressman, said al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and other terrorist groups are on their list of top threats. He shared his country's other most pressing concerns. Enduringly weak institutions and flagging governance reforms, as we witnessed recently in Burkina Faso. Cyclical environmental shocks that have contributed to a situation where 20 million people experience food insecurity. Refugees and internally displaced persons who need basic assistance in Mali. Vast and sometimes ungoverned spaces, fragile economies and poverty. The U.N. estimates that spiraling insecurity and conflicts have displaced 3.3 million people in the Sahel region, a two-fold increase from 1.6 million in January. Meanwhile, humanitarian interventions in the Sahel remain unfunded. Stephanie Kutrix, United Nations. It's 8.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to... Today, in 2013, the sign language interpreter at Nelson Mandela's memorial says he suffers from schizophrenia and hallucinated while gesturing incoherently just three feet, rather one meter, away from President Barack Obama and other world leaders, outraging deaf people worldwide who said his signs amounted to gibberish. That was Today in History last year in 2013. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Human rights activist Venetia Gavinder says Southern African governments do not embrace the notion of opposition. She says liberation movements, which have led many of the region's countries since they gained independence, have an intense sense of entitlement to the state and exclusive vision for its future, leading to power struggles that are at the detriment of their people. At a discussion on electoral democracy held in Johannesburg, South Africa, Governor warned that the region's space for political contestation is increasingly closing in. While opposition parties are seen as a vital function of democracies as they provide a representative system of the electorate, opposition parties in Southern African region, opposition parties in the Southern African region confront a number of challenges in their attempt to function effectively. This is the view of Venetia Gavendam, an activist working in campaigns in Swaziland, Zimbabwe and South Sudan. Gavendam says these challenges have resulted in incumbent parties growing increasingly arrogant, centralizing power and ignoring constructive criticism from opposition parties. You know, from a civil society point of view, the liberation movements are strongest at that level of contesting elections. This is the domain they know, they control, they understand. And coming in, whether you're in opposition, and in particular if you're in opposition, the space is so limited that it's uh, unlikely to make any kind of dent to any, you know, any of the kind of results that come out of the process. It's not an equal ground. It's not a kind of um, a space that one can engage in equally. Even social movements in South Africa, as hard as they will try, but the minute they begin to contest at that level, they realize just how, how strong the liberation movement is in terms of control of those structures. And, and it's not only manipulated control, but I think, you know, the kind of absolute control over it. Southern Africa is completely put off by the entire idea of an opposition of dissent. Gavender says choices being made in the region around natural resources reflect a broad resistance of central governments to local, to local democratization and decentralization of powers. Over the years, being in power has also meant uh, being in control and having access to a wide range of resources. So the natural resource curse, I think, uh, impacts heavily as well. So if you look at Mozambique, it's about to become a gas producer of note. And so therefore, what is at stake is extreme, is at a level that is incomparable with Zambia, in a sense, what it means to be a leader, uh, what access you have to power. So the question of what power they have and what kind of access it gives them to is also a determining factor in whether they will leave quietly or whether they are willing to submit themselves to a process that allows for shifts and changes and bringing in of new influences. Governor says weaknesses of the parliamentary opposition in southern Africa requires the region to ask whether there is a broader set of institutions that can act as sources of opposition and provide genuine checks and balances. She says one party dominance of the government and legislature is less worrisome if other sources of opposition such as civil society organizations are vigorous and effective. 
civil society again, the voice of the population is a little bit out of that. So participation and, and absolute participation, not just casting the vote, but pre-election participation is missing, is a missing feature from it. And, and that again impacts on legitimacy. Civil society representatives at this discussion agreed that democracy is best protected when there is a competitive party system, when the incumbent party is constrained by its need to maintain electoral support, and when opposition parties are motivated by their need to win that support, which they say is not the case in Southern Africa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong in Johannesburg. Without basic public health infrastructures and systems in place, no country can be stable, according to the World Health Organization, WHO. A high-level meeting on building resilient health systems in Ebola-affected countries took place at the UN office in Geneva this week. It aims... Its aim was to find innovative solutions to decide on what needs to be done urgently and in the longer term. The three hardest hit countries are Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone with a combined figure of 6,373 reported deaths. Daniel Johnson reports. A high-level UN summit on Ebola has heard how a wave of panic spread when the disease gripped three West African countries simultaneously. Health Minister for Sierra Leone, Dr. Abu Bakr Fafana, made the comments after saying that the country was totally unprepared for the impact of the virus. It is new to everybody. It is new to the government, new to the people. It is new to even the doctors and the nurses that uh, the population rely on under these circumstances. It is the first to affect more than three countries simultaneously. So you can imagine the wave of panic that is rippling across the affected countries. And it is the first in terms of the sheer magnitude, the scale of uh, the number of people that is involved. And it is the first in terms of the number of health workers that have uh, paid the ultimate price in recent history. At World Health Organization's headquarters in Geneva, Guinea's health minister Dr. Remy Lama told how communities made things worse by turning to traditional healers when people started dying from unexplained causes in March. And Liberia's chief medical officer Dr. Bernice Dan explained how Ebola had shut down 65% of medical centers by default as staff fell sick. At the talks, the question of banning traditional burial practices which have been linked to disease transmission was ruled out. Here's the Liberian delegate, Dr. Bernice Dan. It's not a matter of banning it. It's a matter of behavior change. If you ban it, it could go underground and it could make things worse. So it's a matter of educating people, people understanding why things should be done right and not be done the wrong way, and they change behavior. The good thing about the current outbreak is there's a lot of community involvement. And if we are having successes today in Liberia, it is because the community members themselves are providing the kind of leadership they need to provide at a community level for behavior change. The aim of the Geneva talks is to assess the needs of the three West African countries worst hit by Ebola. Sierra Leone's Dr. Fafana explained how he could probably count on my hand at the number of ambulances the country had before the outbreak. Even worse, the outbreak was declared during the rainy season, he said. This made roads impassable and there were no burial vehicles either, the minister explained.
The talks come amid news that Sierra Leone has imposed a lockdown in Kono District after a major Ebola flare-up. So far, the disease has killed 6,400 people. Daniel Johnson, United Nations. The Red Cross has warned of a possible rise in Ebola cases in West Africa during the holiday season. Now, our question to you today is, has Ebola affected your travel plans this festive season? Email us your thoughts, your views. To info at channelafrica.org, send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Has Ebola affected your travel plans this festive season? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. A twin bomb attack has killed at least 30 people in a busy area of the Nigerian city of Jos. The two bombs exploded in a marketplace near the scene of a major bombing in May. A Zimbabwe opposition party has filed papers in the Constitutional Court in Harare opposing the swearing-in ceremony of President Robert Mugabe's two new vice presidents. And the United Nations mission in South Sudan denies any plan to place the country under international protection. Media reports had suggested that the move was imminent due to a breakdown in peace talks. Details at the top of the hour. Thank you, Amanda. Without exception, member states of the UN are considering sexual and reproductive health as human rights, according to the Assistant Secretary General of the UN Population Fund, UNFPA. Kate Gilmore says a recent report released by the UNFPA is a great source of inspiration and reassurance that countries are seeking to advance human dignity for improving sexual and reproductive rights. Stephanie Castro asked Gilmore about the Universal Periodic Review, UPR, and how the report will affect human rights around the world. We've just released a report examining the references to sexual reproductive health in the Universal Periodic Reviews that each member state conducts as part of our human rights infrastructure at the United Nations. And we're so excited to see that with almost without exception, every Universal Periodic Review is referring to human rights as being relevant to sexual and reproductive health and dignity. This is a great source of inspiration and reassurance that member states are seeking to advance human dignity in this area. What are sexual and reproductive health rights? I like to think about it as part of the indivisible agenda for human rights. And in fact, every human right is relevant to sexual and reproductive health. It's the right to be free of fear, free from coercion, but on the other hand, it's also the right to freedom of expression, to freedom of information, to freedom of assembly. It's the right to form a family, but it's also the right to benefit from science. It's difficult to think of a single article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that's not relevant to advancing human dignity in this most intimate of area, which is sexual and reproductive health and well-being. 
How does the Universal Periodic Review help bring change? It is a process that member states apply, manage and report one unto the other. So it's a process also a periodic peer review. And it's a tool that enables member states to reveal their advance and progress for human rights, but also to give governments a way to have challenging conversations with their own officials about opportunities for greater excellence. How are countries evaluated? Are they evaluating themselves or are peers evaluating each other? The Human Rights Charter of the United Nations provides the benchmark against which member states are scrutinized, and that's something member states have defined themselves. And then the process is a combination of member state self-scrutiny and of civil society engagement. That's a process that allows evidence and fact to emerge on even those issues where sometimes there might be controversy. What countries did better or worse? Actually, it's not so much a question of a list of countries that are doing better or worse in regards to sexual and reproductive health. What the human rights process of the UPR tells us, on what issues are countries scrutinising themselves in regards to human rights advance? Argentina and Brazil are applying human rights very powerfully to themselves. What's exciting is that it's evidencing that there is a universal agenda for human rights and every government is seeking advance in this regard and although we might have different views about that advance, each and every government is engaged in that process. What outcome do you hope that this review will bring in the upcoming years? I think it's shown us how it's a fine example of a, an accountability mechanism that empowers governments towards excellence and I think if we can blend the UPR lessons into uh, the design of accountability mechanisms for the SDGs, then we'll all have done a great job. That was Assistant Secretary-General of the UN Population Fund, Kate Gilmore, talking to Stephanie Castro. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A one-day meeting of East African leaders ended in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, late Thursday, with participants describing the new standard gauge railway to be constructed shortly as the biggest joint development project in post-independence Africa. Known as the Lamu Port South Sudan-Ethiopia Transport Corridor, LabSet, the railway expected to be completed in 42 months, will link Kenya with neighboring countries. James Shimayula reports. The leaders of Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi and South Sudan spent many hours briefing each other on the progress made so far regarding several regional projects including the 609-kilometer rail track expected to link Kenya's coastal city of Mombasa to landlocked neighbors Uganda, Rwanda, and South Sudan. However, the leaders did not say when the construction of the railway will commence. Kasim Omar, director of East African Business Council, disclosed that the new standard gauge railway will not reach Tanzania, which has its own old railway built during the colonial days and harbor on the Indian Ocean. Tanzania has no option but to modernize its rails as well. Tanzania has no choice, but it will have to link up with the rest of uh, the ESC region. 
And in principle, we think that for this region to, to prosper and to grow, there is need for collective uh, engagement, the rail being one of them. We think it will be critical that uh, they have to come on board. And coming on board means uh, working together, because working in isolation will not help the region. Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Amina Mohamed, said even before the construction of the railway starts, already there is fast movement of goods from Kenya's Indian Ocean port of Mombasa to three East and Central African countries. The movement of goods from the port of Mombasa to Kampala, to Burundi and to Rwanda. On aviation we have one in Uganda. Amazing! For me this is the most exciting thing uh, that has happened in the region for a very long time. Representing South Sudan at the Nairobi meeting was Rebecca Joshua Okwashi who underscored the importance of the new railway to her new nation. It gives us an opportunity as a new nation uh, to rally together with the fellow uh, brothers and sisters in the region. Our interest uh, as a region is to move uh, our people forward in terms of growth, in terms of development. For South Sudan, Lopset Corridor will be a new lifeline to the outside world. Tanzania's Minister for Cooperation in the East African Community, Samuel Sita, explained why East Africa region is yet to advance in terms of infrastructure compared to Southern and Northern Africa regions. We will remain behind because we have not been very active in terms of uh, joint projects. If you want to get these infrastructure projects going, you must cooperate so then they become regional projects rather than national projects. And I think this approach is already bearing uh, fruit because of the success in getting finances for fuel pipelines, improvement of the roads, railway lines, improvement of our airports. The new railway, according to Kenyan diplomatic sources, will in the future snake its way across the African continent to Douala and Cameroon, opening up yet another alternative route for transatlantic trade and business between Africa and America. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The Christmas season is upon us once again and Malawi's President Mutarika has threatened to deal with criminals who have been terrorizing the country in the past three months. George Mango reports from Blantyre. President Peter Mutarika has since directed that police should engage in continuous patrols to contain the situation. This comes against the background of the recent spate of armed robberies in residential areas and various private sector entities. I know that you are engaged in crime. Some are syndicates, some are from outside. I know them. I know you. I know where you are. I want to warn you. Whether you are Mbawash or Mbanas, I want to warn you, your days are numbered. We're going to go after you this time uh, to make sure that the security situation is reversed. That I can promise you. It's no longer business as usual. It's a war now. And I ask the police to use any force they can use within the law. Any force within the law and within good judgment to stop this crime. This cannot go on. Last month, Loti Zonzi resigned as police inspector general due to what commentator said his failure to contain the delicate crime situation in the country. 
but he defended his office in the presence of President Mutarika. The last six months of my two years, seven months as Inspector General, the last six months have been very satisfactory for me. I have worked with less stress than I have, in, have had in the rest of my service as Inspector General. And therefore, I would want to underline to the whole nation my deep sense of gratitude for the opportunity and privilege that you gave me, for the trust that you gave me. On the other hand, police admit that crime was high due to lack of equipment and political will last year. For new police inspector general Pokanyama, he would use all means to deal with criminals even after the festive season. I'm taking over the command of the police at a time when crime has, is scaring a lot of people in Malawi. So the, the task ahead of me, ahead of my team, is not an easy one. Let me warn criminals, wherever they are, whatever they do, who, whoever they are, that the honeymoon is over now. They will face the law and the police will take appropriate action uh, to the same level uh, that is required to deal with violent crimes. So if, they, if there are armed robbers out there, we'll make sure that they face the law and we are going to apply appropriate measures to make sure that we put an end to these senseless killings of people, senseless thefts that are taking place. Intelligence reports inform, inform us that the, some of these uh, uh, criminal gangs are sponsored by unscrupulous Malawians. We want to, to warn those again that the law will take its course, we will not rest until we make sure that the uh, there is sanity in this country in as far as security is concerned. Recently, the residence of Vice President Salo Stilima was robbed and the Minister of Natural Resources Satopile Meluzi was attacked by robbers in his own bedroom. This development, according to people, said needed a presidential decree so that tough measures are put in place to deter the malpractice. This too angered the President. Meanwhile, Mutarika has reiterated his pledge to buy 100 vehicles for the police to ensure that the service has enough vehicles. However, it is yet to be seen whether this Christmas festive season will not provide a security threat to people and companies. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. South Africa's power utility Eskom says it's reasonably confident that there will be no load shedding today. However, the power utility says that the grid remains under pressure. The country has been hit by regular rolling blackouts for several weeks due to limited generating capacity and several problems that have occurred at existing power plants. Eskom spokesperson Andrew Etzinger. The grid has stabilized very well since Monday. When you look to the future, as far as Friday is concerned, we are once again reasonably confident that load shedding will not be needed. 
the grid is tight, but it's under control at the moment. On the weekend, of course, we will be wanting to avoid load shedding as soon as possible, but we will only be able to confirm that later this afternoon. And into the festive period as well, we are confident at this stage that, uh, that we will be able to keep the lights on. A discussion hosted by the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg this week has heard that South Africa does not see its uh, relationship with China as just based on trade, but a partnership rather aligned to the country's developmental goals, while China, on the other hand, regards South Africa as a key partner in advancing its relations with the African continent. Ntantlamathangu reports. South Africa, a leading economy on the African continent, and China, the largest developing country in the world, have forged a unique partnership. It is for this reason that President Jacob Zuma's recent visit to China was viewed with keen interest. Trade diplomats say a trillion-dollar deal at the World Trade Organization to reduce the tariffs in the vast information technology sector will stand or fall in the next 24 hours. A trade official involved with the talks say a deal would be very unlikely because of a standoff between South Korea and China, which was refusing all attempts to broker a compromise. Countries representing 97% of the global IT commerce are trying to agree on expanding the WTO's information technology agreement, which would be the first global agreement on tariff cuts in more than a decade. The United Nations has predicted that the global economy will grow by more than 3% in 2015 and 16, but that growth will be uneven in some regions. The UN's annual economic report says the growth edged up in 2014 at an estimated 2.6%. The UN is forecasting 3.1% economic growth in 2015 and 3.3% growth in 2016. Long-term unemployment remains a problem in many regions recovering from the Great Recession. Cooperation Bank of Kenya will cut 160 jobs mainly at management level after a review of the business by an external consultant. The lender, which also operates in South Sudan, engaged McKinsey and company earlier in the year to help it restructure the organization and position for faster growth. Cooperation said the job losses, which will take effect from December the 22nd, were as a result of some rules being combined and others being eliminated. The bank, one of the largest lenders in the region with an asset base of more than $2.98 billion, posted a 2.5% rise in pretext profit for the first nine months of this year. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The US dollar trades at 11.52 South African Rand. 943 Botswana Pula, 632 in Zambia, 064 to the British Pound, 081 across the Eurozone, Gold $1218, Platinum $1235 an ounce, Brand Crude $64.22 a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tavisa. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Sports fans, work is currently underway in Malabo, the capital city of Equatorial Guinea, as the country prepares to host the Africa Cup of Nations tournament next year, January. The country stepped in in the 11th hour when initial hosts Morocco backtracked, citing the Ebola virus. The president of the National Government Project, Francesca Omayeng, says they are ready to host the tournament. Uh, look, I mean, I played at Ellis Park in 95 World Cup, so Ellis Park will always be close to our hearts. It has been done before when it was Coca-Cola Park. Uh, we're fortunate with this. Apologies for the wrong sound. Um, let's just go to our next story. Bafana Bafana will play one international friendly match here at home against Iran on the last week of this month as part of their preparations for the Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Equatorial Guinea. This has been confirmed by the South African Football Association CEO Dennis Mumble during an official launch of Bafana Bafana's new kit at the Nike Football Centre. Iran coached by former Bafana Bafana coach Carlos Queiroz who came very close to returning to South Africa in July are also preparing for the Asian Championships that will take place in Australia next month. Ahead of a tough Group C that involves Algeria, Senegal and Ghana, Mambo says all plans are in place. We'll have one match uh, here in December and then uh, one or two matches going into the tournament uh, outside the country in that general area of Equatorial Guinea. So it's either Cameroon or Gabon, one of, one of the two or both, if we can pull it off. It's also understood that Bafana Mafana will have one or two more friendly matches at the identified base in Gabon in January. Mongomo, the Indian city that will host the Group C matches, is on the border of Equatorial Guinea and Gabon. Mambo says an advanced team has already been sent to the area and did some groundwork. Our advanced team has already been there. They've been looking at the, uh, at the venue and uh, where we can camp and also where we can play a friendly or two before the tournament. So all of that is already in place. We'll probably announce it in the next few days. If not, uh, then early next week, we'll make an announcement as to what we are going to do. Uh, but I think what, what we've seen so far, uh, the, our technical team is happy with it. You know, the coach and the manager were there last week uh, for, uh, during the draw and they took some extra days to go and look at the other, uh, the other places or places where we can have our camp. So, uh, but those things are, 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 well, well on its way and, and uh, already planned. Yeah. So on football news, police in England have gone down to business of unmasking the killers of a young Nigerian footballer identified as Joel Asidene. The 15-year-old Asidene was stabbed last Friday at Benthill Green, East London, following a late-night drama. Detective Chief Inspector Chris Jones of the Med Homicide and Major Crime Command says they will appreciate information from possible witnesses to get to the root of the crime. The late Asidene was described as hard-working and equally ambitious by his neighbours and his amateur club coach, even went on to say that the Nigerian youngster was talented enough to play professionally. According to police, the teenager was walking with friends when they were confronted by a group in a parked car. The group was pursued into the housing estate where neighbors heard screaming and shouting and that was when Jean was cornered and stabbed. And finally, rugby news. The spiritual home of Springbok Rugby and the scene of their greatest triumph in the sport. In the 1995 Rugby World Cup, Ellis Park has a new name and will now be known as the Emirates Airline Park. 
from uh, from the as from the beginning of next year the announcement was made on thursday at ellis park by emirates airlines senior vice president commercial operations ohan abbas along with golden lions rugby union ceo and the 1995 world cup winning springbok um um, player Rudolf Strali. The sponsorship is not just with the naming rights of the stadium, but also the naming rights of the Lions team in Super Rugby and will span for five years. Strali says Ellis Park will always remain in the hearts of the people, but the sponsorship would be the lifeblood in making the Lions a viable Super Rugby franchise. Uh, look, I mean, I played at Ellis Park in '95 World Cup, so Ellis Park will always be close to our hearts. It has been done before when it was Coca-Cola Park. Uh, we're fortunate with this sponsorship that is extensive sponsorship for the next five years to stabilize this uh, franchise and union, not just Super Rugby, but right through uh, commercially. Uh, Emirates is a brand that flies to 140 countries, destinations, and over six continents. It will build a brand, and so will the stadium. When we hopefully do get a test match, that will build the brand even further. So uh, we're really excited about the sponsorship and we uh, will always be, uh, as Madiba said, Alice Park will always be in our hearts. So no one forget the name Alice Park. Those are your sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.